Hello everyone, welcome to the Sons of Antiquity podcast. I'm your host Evan, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host Dan. How's it going? The act of arguing has gained a lot of bad press over the years, and in our divisive, polarized world, it seems that any and all means of debate and rational discussion have been abandoned. But an argument doesn't have to be a pointless shouting match laced with insults and threats. Believe it or not, there is a way to argue effectively and logically. All it takes is a little discipline and a little knowledge. Today we'd like to cover the art, or perhaps the science, of arguing and fill you in on the do's and don'ts of rational debate. Sure, it may be a lost cause, considering that a growing percentage of people think words can literally constitute violence. But if nothing else, the information in this episode will help you have more constructive debates with friends, family, or coworkers who don't want to punch you or throw you in a gulag. If you'd like to have a constructive argument with someone, a helpful first step is to think of it as a debate rather than an argument. A debate is a formal discussion on a particular topic in a public meeting or legislative assembly in which opposing arguments are put forward. This may seem like a very formal definition, but it helps to enter this frame of mind when you argue. When you argue, you want to bring the truth to light, and in doing so, either convince the other person that your point of view is valid, or perhaps learn the truth yourself and modify your stance accordingly based on new insights or new perspectives. You won't accomplish this by insulting them or getting them or yourself worked up and emotional. By thinking of an argument as a debate with calm statements of fact, tasteful critiques, and dispassionate delivery, it makes the whole process much smoother. But why do this in the first place? Why should we argue? What's the point? It's not going to change anything. Well, no, not with that attitude. Despite the increasing levels of ignorance within the general population, people must still be able to see reason on some basic level. If that weren't the case, Human beings would be dropping dead left and right. We all use logic and reason to navigate our complex human lives. And for the most part, people can be reliably logical about things they don't care about. It's when we wade into the murky waters of politics or religion or golden white dresses, or was it blue and black? That's when we start to see logic give way to passion. Arguments are great for a few reasons. They can convince others of the truth. They can help you see the truth you were previously blind to. They can sharpen your mind and skills. They can introduce others to rational debate in a way they may have never experienced before. If nothing else, they can give you the right to complain afterwards when things don't go your way. Hey, I tried to tell him. He just wouldn't listen. And let's also consider the Western tradition. Some of history's greatest minds, thinkers, philosophers, writers, historians, generals, emperors, Many of them argued endlessly with their contemporaries over the topics that concerned the people of that time or place. In fact, one of the gems of the Western tradition is the Platonic Dialogue, a genre of literature developed by Plato and Xenophon. Platonic Dialogues were written by a single author, but they allowed the writer to form long arguments and counter-arguments by speaking through different characters with differing opinions on a given topic. As the characters argued, the truth would eventually be revealed, thereby proving whatever point the author was trying to make. Early dialogues often featured Socrates as a character, debating with some other person to discover more about their point of view. And can you really think of a better protagonist? I certainly can't. I mean, he's, uh, he's, he's the most inquisitive man maybe ever. And though this tradition began 2,300 years ago, the Platonic Dialogue format proved extremely useful over the centuries and continues to play a role in philosophical discussion today. Some famous dialogues from history include De Republica by Cicero, 
The Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius, featuring lady philosophy rather than Socrates as a character. Three Dialogues between Hylas and Philonous by George Berkeley. David Hume's Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion and Life and How to Survive It by psychologist Robin Skinner and comedian John Cleese of Monty Python fame. Now ask yourself this, and please be honest. Do you think the average high school student could write a convincing scene in which two characters with differing views calmly discuss a topic and come to a rational conclusion about it? Could the average adult even do it? Odds are, no, probably not. Why is that? It is pretty clear that most Americans do not know how to debate logically, and you can't really blame them. They were never taught how. Unlike back in the day, logic and rhetoric are not taught in public schools nor in most private schools. Logic is the science that deals with the principles and criteria of validity of inference and demonstration, the science of the formal principles of reasoning. Rhetoric is the study of writing or speaking as a means of communication or persuasion. Neither are taught in our modern education system. So what went wrong? Education from the ancient Romans to the Enlightenment was pretty much unchanged. We call it now classical education. It focused on the trivium, which is grammar, logic, and rhetoric, in that order. Grammar teaches raw facts. Logic teaches understanding of facts and how to form basic arguments. And rhetoric teaches effective presentation of arguments. Each respectively corresponds to elementary, middle, and high school. This makes sense. Young children love to tell you all the facts they learned, middle schoolers love to argue, and high schoolers seek wisdom and the big picture. Hence why so many kids these days become social justice warriors or libertarians in high school, like some of us. We should cover classical education in a future episode, don't you think? I think we certainly should, and uh, I think a great place to start would be uh, with your great book's reading list, which you have said is, is basically a substitute for a classical education, right? It's, it's a substitute for the high school level. Oh, okay. It's not usually started until high school age. But it's certainly more than what high schoolers today are getting. Yeah. Realistically, you should be taught uh, logic and grammar beforehand. You kind of get it through public school. You learn a lot of grammar, as in just raw facts in elementary school, but you don't learn the logic. So it's important. Of course. And what would you say would be in some of the books that you have come across in this list? That might be a good introduction to people who didn't have that classical education or who want to get into logic and rhetoric and things like that. To be honest, uh, the list almost assumes that you have that basic level. Really? Yes. I would say there's one counterexample. Um, I haven't read it yet, but I have it in my collection. It is Rhetoric by Aristotle. He's one of the founders of the field of legitimate rhetoric, not just sophistry. Yeah, um, so how to persuade and how to argue effectively and make a good case you're saying, yes, is what he was talking about. Yes, and not just convince people. There's a difference between trying to convince somebody and trying to be right and get people to agree with you. So yeah, I, I recommend books outside of the great books to read first before you delve into the great books or any, any old book, because any old book assumes that you already have that basis of grammar and logic. It's kind of like I heard in, in the old Disney movies the really old like cartoons they would do. They would play classical music in the background, like classical tunes. And it was assumed that everybody above elementary school like knew the composer and the name of the piece. Really? Yeah, so they could say, oh yeah, that was, uh, that was Bach, that was... Beethoven... Oh, that's Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto number two. Like they would... That was ba considered basic knowledge back then, like a century ago. I, I can't even imagine a modern elementary school or middle school or even a high schooler 
who didn't have any music education, even some that do that were in band or whatever. I can't imagine them just being able to go back and watch a cartoon and be like, oh, yeah, I know, I know what that is. I never learned that, and I took seven years of band. Wow. Yeah, the, the standard back then for what was considered common knowledge and what, was, what you were supposed to learn in school way higher than it it is. I mean, it's just it's just miles and miles above what we have today, which is sad. But that doesn't mean that we should accept a, a you know, a defeatist attitude because the sources are out there. A library card basically free. Yeah, and there's lots of modern books that were written by people with classical education in mind trying to teach about grammar, logic, rhetoric. There's lots of classical education resources out there. A lot of them are geared toward homeschooling. But still, you can find them. They're not inaccessible. And maybe one day we will compile a short video listing some of them. So look out for that. I think that'd be a helpful resource. And also maybe a video on homeschooling. Returning to our own times, people are ignorant of basic facts. Just watch one of Jay Leno's geography quizzes with strangers or anything with the uh, the on-the-street interview type of format. They can't form a basic argument without resorting to name-calling and emotionalism, and they lack wisdom. This matters. Without logical debate, the only way to solve disagreements is through force. That's what we're seeing today with the uh, woke politics and the new right. As we mentioned earlier, words are considered literal violence to many on the left today. Debate may make you uncomfortable, but it is better to get in a debate with a rival than a knife fight. Just saying. Also, we can never know the truth without logic as our guide. Now, do you think that the right is still capable of debate, even if it's only among other members on the right or with libertarians? And is the left capable of debate among their members? Uh, to answer the latter question, I think increasingly no, in that even there's a lot of infighting within the left. Like you got the AOC people against like the more establishment, and they don't often resort to logic and argumentation. It's just screaming matches and accusations and doxing and swatting swatting you do see a lot of that and you don't really see them challenging each other even to debates like hey come on my podcast let's debate i mean every now and then you do and in the normie sphere you sometimes see that or hey let's let's discuss this or whatever and on the right you definitely see hey come on my show come on my podcast and let's talk you know let's meet somewhere or i'll go on your show let's do this there that is almost just a feature of the right, I think, even among people who are on different sides of of issues. And then there is a lot of disagreement on on issues on the right and among, you know, libertarians. So yeah, I I would say that the left is is not capable of that. As far as libertarians go, I still think they they have a lot of argumentation within. And I think they actually use proper, well, they they resort to arguments instead of just other tactics. Yeah. They're probably the best group about it, to be honest. You think libertarians are the best about just debating? Yeah. I think so. I mean, that's all they do. They don't actually do anything, so. (laughs) Got them. Yeah, you're right. You're totally right. And so, I mean, if you're going to have basically no skill, if you're going to have one skill, it might as well be debating and writing books about uh, child slaves and stuff. (laughs) But I'm, I'm a little bit worried about the future of the right in this way because the new right is kind of a more might makes right. Increasingly. Yeah, to where, well, this, it, there's no more room for debate. It's time for action, which is fine in a way. You know, we don't want to just debate forever and let everyone else act. But also, right. but also we, we shouldn't just say, oh, you disagree, like time to punch you in the face or time to shut you down. 
There needs to be a balance. There does. Uh, but, you know, that balance can only last so long before people really start pushing and shoving us into action. And I think that's kind of where we're at. There's a lot of people, and there's even a big split on the right as to when do we draw the line of, okay, are we done debating? Are we done talking? Them's fighting words. Let's do it, boogaloo, etc. So that is a big topic of debate on the right, in as much as people can debate it without getting arrested. But yeah, it's, uh, it's getting tougher and tougher. And the new right is a result of the new left. Their, their response that Trump and all of that, it, it's a response to leftism. It wouldn't have happened if the left was calmly debating and wasn't like taking over everything. I agree. And if they hadn't controlled all the institutions or the majority of the institutions and wasn't constantly running around saying, oh, you're a Nazi, you are a white supremacist, racist, bigot, xenophobe, we need to get these out of here. I just heard the, I think it was Hochul or someone in New York saying, you know, get out of here, go down to Florida. We don't want you here. You're not real New Yorkers. That's the type of rhetoric we're hearing. You're not real Americans. You're not real New Yorkers. You're not real this and that. If you believe in Trump or you believe in X, Y, Z, if you don't fit into the very narrow, woke ideology, you're not part of our group. It's so exclusionary. And the rhetoric behind it is just so nasty. It's no wonder you've got people on the new right who are assuming a more authoritative stance. I guess to conclude this discussion, it kind of reminds me, lots of people on the left and the new right, they, they make fun of the old school, like uh, marketplace of ideas, kind of conservatives and I don't know. They just that just came to mind. I don't know where we want to run. No, they do make fun of them for good reason because we realize that in the marketplace of ideas, it only works if everybody cares about ideas and not about power. Once someone comes into the marketplace of ideas with an AK, you know, good luck selling your ideas and trading your ideas, and that's essentially what has happened. So. What makes a good argument? The simplest form of an argument consists of two premises which lead to a conclusion. There should be an unproblematic path from the premises to the conclusion. There can be a series of steps in between, but reasoning is critical. You can't say, the sky is blue and geese migrate twice a year. Therefore, the boiling point of water is 100 degrees Celsius. The conclusion does not follow from the premises, although we know from experience that both the conclusion and premises are true. A classic example of a good argument is, Socrates is a man, all men are mortal, therefore Socrates is mortal. There are two premises which everybody agrees are true, and the conclusion follows. This is a deductive argument. Deduction is the process of discerning more specific truths, Socrates is mortal, from more general premises, Socrates is a man and all men are mortal. Induction is the process of discerning general premises from specific truths. This is the way of science. For example, we took 100 measurements and determined that the acceleration due to gravity is 9.8 meters per second squared. This gives us a law about how things move through space. Inductive arguments are never 100% proven true. Why? Because there's always a chance that given enough time, an observation or measurement might be made that disproves the current theory. The argument must also cover the entirety of the subject. It shouldn't intentionally leave out information which could contradict it. For example, one could argue that Bill Clinton was a terrible president. That may be true. However, while the detractor may focus on Monica Lewinsky and the Three Strikes Law, it would be unfair to leave out how he balanced the budget and signed the Defense of Marriage Act, if those are things that you support. It is fine to still say that overall he was a bad president, but you should include as many pertinent points as possible. 
Terms used in the debate must have an agreed-upon definition. If the combatants use different definitions for the same word, then the argument cannot proceed productively. Define your terms. This is a threat. Just kidding. That would not be in the spirit of friendly debate in the marketplace of ideas. Finally, arguments should be stated plainly and clearly. It should be easy for anybody with a basic understanding of the topic and logic to understand your premises and conclusions. Don't try to overwhelm your opponent with fancy words or gobbledygook. Now we have the foundation laid for a more detailed discussion of argumentation, or more appropriately, how to not argue. Logical fallacies are statements and tactics which deflect from the real topic by not using logic. Let us say that in all these types of fallacies, we will seek to define the term, give good examples from all over the ideological spectrum, and provide cases where such an argument is valid. Here we go. The first category is the red herring fallacy. A red herring fallacy is something that misleads or distracts from the topic at hand. Instead of refuting one's opponent with a counter-argument, the red herring is saying, Hey, look over there! A huge portion of the logical fallacies you hear in everyday life will fall under this category. Ad hominem attacks are aimed at the opponent instead of his argument. While the person may deserve personal criticism, pointing out personal flaws is a diversionary tactic meant to steer away from the actual topic and discredit the opponent on a personal level. And if he is what you say he is, why should anyone listen to him, right? The problem with ad hominems, besides their commonality with children and teenagers, is that the victim almost always has to defend himself from the charge, wasting valuable time which he could be using to defend his argument. Some examples include, you're sexist, racist, homophobic, transphobic, blah blah blah, and you're just an incel. It also could be the claim that the other person's motives are evil, or that the target's association with allegedly shady people makes him shady himself. Ad hominem objections can be valid in rare cases. If a person is actually untrustworthy and a known liar, that would be a good reason to question their authenticity. Next is an appeal to authority. It's a form of argument where the opinion of an authority on a topic is used as evidence to support an argument. Something like, person A claims that X is true. Person A is an expert in the field concerning X. Therefore, X should be believed. In science, appeals to authority are systematically rejected. Every experiment and claim must be repeatable and proven. The scientific community has been humiliated in the past for this. Yet ironically, people love to argue that 99% of scientists agree that global warming is real and a threat to humanity, or Greta Thunberg said so neither of which have anything to do with the actual facts and statistics about environmental changes, climate, etc. Let's say your teacher claims that the national debt is $20 million and your classmate argues that it must be true because the teacher is an authority to you and an authority in the subject. That would be a fallacy. You could also make the claim that some famous person, Aristotle for example, makes a claim, so we should take it at face value. Though you would be pretty safe trusting one of the greatest minds of the Western tradition, it still would be the wrong path to take. In fact, Aristotle disagreed with his teacher, Plato, on many subjects. An appeal to experts is a form of the appeal to authority fallacy, but I figured I should bring it up since it has been in vogue in the past few years. Frankly, I think that this should be a hot takes episode by itself, so we won't go into it too deeply. Oftentimes, an article will say, blank is actually blank according to science. Since the quote-unquote journalist knows next to nothing about the topic at hand, he or she is just trusting that someone else's shitty take on some poorly run study or research paper is accurate. It is unwarranted trust without analyzing the original source. We could also mention a certain doctor who has wielded immense power recently. 
An appeal to experts is often correct. Who knows about a topic more than those who focus an inordinate amount of time and attention on it? Physicists tend to know a lot about physics. Surgeons tend to know about surgeries, and so on. The problem comes when the expert's opinion is taken at face value without a corresponding analysis of the claim. Also, the words expert and science, registered trademark, are thrown around carelessly these days. Emotional reasoning is the act of manipulating others' emotions in order to win an argument. It encompasses many fallacies and can appeal to consequences, fear, flattery, pity, ridicule, spite, wishful thinking, and many more. Often ignored, however, are positive emotions that can be evoked, such as compassion, honor, and hope. Example, I feel attacked by what you just said. Don't you care about my feelings? Or, think of the children. Or, if Trump is reelected, we will be invaded by Russia. Let's face it, it is very difficult to change people's minds with facts alone. Appealing to emotions is way more effective than facts and logic statistically. That's why propaganda focuses on arousing positive emotions towards the propagandists and negative emotions towards the enemies. Aristotle was the first to write about it in his work Rhetoric. He knew that emotions often drive people away from reasonable opinions. But with his work on Rhetoric, he taught the reader to convince people of the truth using all means of persuasion. Ad populum is an argument which is based on claiming a truth or affirming something is good because the majority thinks so. It goes by many names, such as an appeal to popularity, bandwagon, and mob appeal. Interestingly, there is a reverse ad populum where you say that because something is popular, it's bad. You might call this the hipster fallacy. As an example, 62% of Americans support a ban on assault weapons. That means we must pass gun control now. Or, you like Ed Sheeran? Ugh, you're such a mindless drone. The best musicians have less than 100 people at their concerts. The basis of democracy is the execution of the majority's will. So if a substantial majority of citizens support something, an advocate of democracy would bow to their will. Next, the genetic fallacy is a fallacy of irrelevance, in which arguments or information are dismissed or validated based solely on their source of origin rather than content. It is the reversal of the appeal to authority. Example, Obama said it, so it must be wrong. Or, why did you get married when marriage stems from the practice of selling women? Got him. Claims made under the guise of a genetic fallacy may be true. For example, what Obama said may have been wrong indeed. However, the claim must be assessed on its own merits, not on who said it. To defeat this fallacy, simply ask, if someone else said X instead of Obama, would it still be true? A straw man is when an opponent's argument is replaced with a weaker version of itself, which is then easily refuted. Here's a good example. Can you believe that the pro-birthers want to put women in chains so they can't leave the kitchen? Or, relaxing laws on beer makes a society of crackheads who can't hold a job. True. By definition, the straw man fallacy is never true. It is always a misrepresentation of the opponent's arguments. Instead, try to steel man your opponent and give the best possible line of reasoning in support of their position. Tu quoque is a technique that tries to discredit the opponent's argument by accusing the opponent of hypocrisy. I love to point out when others use the tu quoque fallacy. It's probably my favorite one. In fact, my wife uses it too, and she predicts when I'm about to say that she used it. She'll just jump in immediately. You're going to say I used a two quote, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. She mocks me like that. That's okay. Maybe you deserve it. <laughs> yeah. Here's a funny example, which I heard and I believe to be true. A new dean was elected at Harvard back in the day, and he forbade Jews from being admitted. When confronted by professors over this, he claimed, 
the Jews cheat on their exams. They replied, every Harvard student cheats. And the dean retorted, don't change the subject. Another common example which I have used goes something like this. You complain about the priest's sex abuse scandal, but what about teachers? While it is true that teachers commit sexual abuse at a higher rate than priests, it still doesn't detract from the horror of the priest's sex abuse scandal. Plus, priests should be held to a higher standard than groomers. Very true. And in the interest of transparency, I would like to point out that in one of our Hot Takes episodes, that was uh, the anti-grooming bill. We did make this fallacy. I mean, we did commit this act. Uh, we brought up the the sex abuse, and then uh, I think Evan was saying, "Look, do people want to talk about the sex abuse scandal in the church?" But there's all these groomers in I mean, the education system, and it's it's, it's true. true. It is true. It's true. But it is technically a fallacy. Yeah. Both things are bad. We should be against both of them. Yeah. And another name for two quoque is what aboutism. Someone makes a claim, you say, "What about this?" That's, yeah. that's the definition. You hear of that quote, all right? the time. It's always uh, in politics these days. That's a very common one. Yeah. Is, is what, oh, what about these guys? It totally just it deflects from what was just asked and it brings the viewer or the listener's attention to something else, which may be totally irrelevant. In addition, teenagers love to use this argument against adults. When an adult tells them not to do drugs, they can say, I can't believe this. You smoked dope all the time when you were in college. While an argument is more compelling when it comes from a non-hypocritical source, it doesn't mean that the item in question is right. It's bad to do drugs, kids, even if your boomer parents did them back in the day. Two quoque arguments work in practice sometimes. For example, if a wife yelled at her husband for cheating and threatened to leave him and take all his money, he could rightly point out how she is an adulteress herself. It doesn't make it right, but something seems off about someone like Tiger Woods chiding a man for adultery. In addition, Jesus instructed his followers to remove the log in their own eyes before removing a speck from their brother's eye. Next, let's discuss faulty generalizations. Faulty generalizations are when conclusions are drawn about all or many instances of a phenomenon on the basis of one or a few instances of that phenomenon. No true Scotsman is a fallacy in which one attempts to protect their universal generalization from a falsifying counterexample by excluding the counterexample improperly. Basically, Person A makes a universal claim, person B gives a counterexample, and person A excludes that counterexample as not being a true example of the universal category. And people also say stuff like, the exception proves the rule. If there's an exception, it's not a very good rule. No, yeah. I or at say least so. it should be a general rule, not just a solid rule. Yeah, but they'll like hold both of those at the same time. Oh, it's a solid rule, except for this exception. Which that proves that that proves the rule. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, boomer. <laughs> Example: All true Southerners love fried chicken. But my uncle Ben in Mississippi hates fried chicken. Well, your uncle Ben is not a true Southerner. Or as another example, no true communist state is oppressive. Almost all cases of the no true Scotsman argument are fallacious. However, I could imagine some all-or-nothing claims that are correct by their very definition. For example. No true bachelor is married, or no real triangle has four sides. Both of these are true because the definitions of bachelor and triangle exclude the condition that follows. Cherry picking is the act of pointing to an individual case or cases or data that seem to confirm a particular position while ignoring a significant portion of related and similar cases or data that may contradict that position. Cherry picking often goes hand in hand with confirmation bias 
where one disregards evidence which contradicts his point of view and accepts everything that seems to affirm it. Here's an example in, example of pop science like I mentioned earlier. This survey from 2013 proves that six beers a day can decrease your risk for obesity. Studies and surveys are almost entirely useless, but sometimes they're less useless if you do a meta-analysis of all the data and don't just rely on a single survey. Also, something that, that Daniel likes to say. What is it? I, there's a lot of things I like to say. Oh, well, what about this one counterexample to global warming? Not everybody agrees with global, with, with global yes. warming. Yeah, not all scientists agree. And of the scientists that agree, not all of them believe it's warming. And of the ones that uh, don't believe that, all the ones this and that. And it's just a long train. I've almost memorized. Like It's, it's like a copy pasta at this point. Uh, maybe one day I'll write it out for you guys to share. But yeah, that's the one I always bring up. Which is a fallacy. I don't care. I'm the world's biggest hypocrite, as I have chronicled on this show many, many times, doing a whole episode about logical fallacies, and I'm the most fallacious guy that there is. I mean, I'm just saying that this, that's just how I am. Anyway, a related phenomenon is using anecdotal evidence to support a point. You may not know a single person who voted for Biden, but that doesn't mean that Trump dominated the 2020 election. And I'll have you know that uh, Evan wrote that, not me. Well, he didn't dominate either way. So I said, What about I... the 2,000 mules, Evan? What about the 2,000 mules? I specifically said dominated so that you would agree with it. Oh, okay. I didn't say one. I'm just ribbing you, my man. In reality, you want to sift the inputs. Obviously, bogus claims should be ignored. However, you have to be careful that you don't exclude evidence simply because it contradicts your opinion. Next. A false analogy is, well, an example that does not apply or make sense. Example. The stock market is like a colony of rabbits. It just keeps growing indefinitely. Of course, analogies often make sense, but even the best analogies are imperfect. A hasty generalization is a fallacy wherein a conclusion is drawn about all instances of a phenomenon on the basis of one or a few instances of that phenomenon. It is also just called jumping to conclusions or stereotyping. A major example could be, all the Americans that I've seen in Paris are obnoxious jerks. Therefore, all Americans are loud and rude. With enough examples, it is feasible to make reasonable assumptions about a group or phenomenon. However, you need to always keep in mind that there are exceptions to the rule. Our third category, the questionable cause fallacy, is a case where a cause is incorrectly identified. Post hoc ergo propter hoc, or after this, therefore because of this, is the claim that because event B followed event A, event B was caused by event A. In other words, correlation does not equal causation. Example, he died from food poisoning and a minute later lightning struck. That must be a sign from God. Or, whenever I drink two cans of Michelob Ultra before the Patriots play, they win. If I don't drink it, they will lose. Everything besides God has a cause, so it is reasonable to assume that if something happens right after something else, there was cause and effect. However, oftentimes, coincidence is to blame. Mark Twain famously said that there are lies, there are damned lies, and then there are statistics. Statistics is a branch of mathematics that can be easily misunderstood and abused, so let's briefly cover a few fallacies related to statistics. The gambler's fallacy, or the Monte Carlo fallacy, occurs when you think that if you keep flipping heads on a coin, then it is more likely to flip tails next time. That's just an example of it. In fact, you have a 50% chance of getting tails on every flip. It doesn't matter how many heads you've gotten in a row. People have a hard time accepting that the same result can happen a ton of times in a row when it is random. But that's how randomness works sometimes, and the name comes from Monte Carlo Casino in Monaco. They were playing roulette or something, 
and it it got one color like 23 times in a row and the the casino made a huge amount of money because everyone kept betting that it would hit the other one wow and that's just it's just a random event i mean unless we could somehow prove that they had rigged it you can't can't it's just the way randomness works, people think if it's random, it's going to never be the same thing over again. Yeah, but when uh, people plan randomness, they have they they have a very unrandom way of looking at it. Of course, just uh, shuffle all the music on your phone, and you'll find that none of the songs will repeat until the end. It gets back around. But real randomness, so even in like the numbers of digits of pi, there are repeating numbers in there. They don't repeat very often, but they do. You'll have like a few sixes in a row or a few fives in a row. And it's not completely random. Like every single number is going to be different. Yeah. But also going back to your shuffling analogy, people won't think that they'll hear journey five times in a row, but it happens. Yeah. If it's truly random, you would occasionally hear journey five times in a row, which uh, sounds like uh, hell. Survivorship bias is the error of concentrating on the people or things that make it past some selection process and overlooking those that did not, typically because of their lack of visibility. Prime example, I went to public school and I turned out fine. Or, look at all the professional athletes who made it to the big leagues. That will be me too. Though surviving is usually a matter of coincidence, it can be a result of individual initiative and hard work. However, as a statistical question, we must consider other factors or just plain luck. Loaded questions are questions and surveys which induce a certain response. For example, as I'm sure you've seen in ads online, do you support Donald Trump's efforts to drain the swamp and restore law and order? Or do you oppose the radical rights plans to strip women of their basic reproductive rights? These are nonsense questions and any results which are produced can be thrown out the window. Experiments and surveys are often conducted improperly. They can ask a group of people which is not representative of the group in question, and they can ask questions in ways which skew results, which is the opposite of scientific. Unfavorable responses can be discarded, leaving the desired result. You could claim that 30% of the survey takers were trolls and remove their results. There are some fallacies that don't fit nicely into any of our groups so far, but we will include them in this section for completeness. Circular reasoning, or begging the question, is an instance where an argument's premises assume the truth of the conclusion instead of supporting it. Usually it goes like, A is true because B is true, B is true because A is true. Here's one. Gluttony is a mortal sin because it is deadly. Mortal and deadly are synonyms. More often than not, begging the question is the result of poor reasoning rather than malice. The speaker must give reasons for the conclusion to be true, rather than assume so. False dichotomies are based on a premise that erroneously limits what options are available. Options are falsely limited to just two, or possibly some other number, when the real number of paths forward exceeds that number. Example, if you criticize capitalism, you are a communist, or you can go to bed now or in five minutes. Oh, I I utilize that one to the brink. Thankfully, uh, base daughter doesn't quite understand logical fallacies yet. Oh, she, she does, though. <laughs> She straight up just says no. <laughs> or if it's like you you have one of these two foods, which of these two foods do you want it? She says no. <laughs> no, she wants she wants a uh, candy or whatever. What's her fame? Her she wants Pringles. Is what yeah, she wants. she wants Pringles. No, she does not want apples or cheese. So she doesn't fall for it. Actually, she's too smart. But wow, many kids do. Yes, thankfully, you can trick them for a while, I guess. In life, oftentimes there are actually only two options, and you have to pick one. Will you marry the girl or not? Do you believe in God or not? Finally, P 
People disagree, so the truth is unknowable. This is one that I have witnessed many times, but we are unsure if there is a technical term for it. The claim is that since there is widespread disagreement about a topic, that means that there is no objective answer. This is subjectivist nonsense. Example. Look at all the religions that exist. Surely this is proof that God is a fairy tale. Or, everyone has their own opinions on how to lose weight, so nutrition is unproven speculation. This argument is a valid take on mere opinions. People disagree on which flavor of ice cream is best, because opinions cannot be proven. Moving the goalposts is a fallacy in which evidence presented in response to a specific claim is dismissed, and some other, often greater evidence, is demanded. It comes from sports, such as rugby and soccer, where goalposts have been moved to give the home team an unfair advantage. For the record, the practice of switching sides halfway through the game makes this practice unhelpful. Example. Just came randomly to me. A recession has historically been defined as two consecutive quarters of economic decline. However, we are not in a recession because there are a lot of other indicators of it. Unless all sides agree to the new rules, changing the rules during the game constitutes cheating. Changing definitions is another common tactic. In response to criticism, one simply says that his opponent is using an outdated definition of the word. Or in modern times, one can claim that a definition for a word is hurtful and unnecessary. Example. Racism used to mean hatred of another race, but now it means when someone of a race which holds power shows hatred towards those of a marginalized race. Or, there is no way to define a woman. Again, all sides must agree to change the definition before it is changed. It is simple. Otherwise, you're just playing word games and deflecting real argumentation. Define your words, kids. The slippery slope is an argument in which a party asserts that a relatively small first step leads to a chain of related events culminating in some significant and negative effect. It can be split up into the causal slippery slope and the judgmental slippery slope. The causal asserts that the first step will lead to a series of other events until it reaches the significant and negative end. The judgmental claims that making the selected judgment will lead one to logically accept further judgments. Example. If we ban assault weapons, the government will take all our guns away and we'll live in Nazi Germany. Or, accepting free speech will lead you to become a right-wing extremist. There are many cases where the slippery slope argument is fair. You must prove that the steps following the first event are inevitable or truly logical. This requires evidence, and the burden of proof is yours. Special pleading, or the double standard, is the attempt to make an exception to a general principle without good reason. Example, blackjack is not gambling, it's not the slot machine, or no uterus, no opinion. The latter is special pleading because it argues that women should be exempt from criticism by men. If you provide a good reason to exempt your case, you can get away with this. This hardly ever occurs in reality, though. Threats of violence or blackmail are increasingly common against dehumanized groups. Resorting to force is a common feature of those who have never heard of logic. Here's the famous example, punch a Nazi, or if you detonate someone on Facebook, you will be doxxed, or if you weren't a socialist soy boy, you wouldn't have gotten beat up. For prudential reasons, you may not want to incite an angry mob against you. It's not a logical argument, but nobody wants to get shot either. This concludes our summary of logical fallacies. It's not the most comprehensive list ever created, but it's pretty darn close. Now that you're more familiar with them, it's pretty likely you'll start to see them everywhere you look, because let's face it, they really are everywhere. Think of yourself as Roddy Piper, and you just put on those special sunglasses that let you see right through the lies and subliminal propaganda. We hope that you've gotten a lot out of this episode. 
However, this exercise wasn't intended to make you a neckbeard and rudely correct people all the time. Instead of being an insufferable person who just yells, that's a logical fallacy, gently guide people towards bettering their logic and rhetoric. And even more importantly, examine your own life and see where you have room for improvement. You probably utilize many of these fallacies, so stay humble. Sit down. A society with more reason will venture ever closer to truth and virtue. And now, takeaways. Modern discourse blatantly utilizes logical fallacies to sway the masses. Logic is not taught in public schools, and it shows. Politics, popular media, advertisements, and news sources all make use of these fallacies. Look out for them next time you're watching TV or scrolling through social media. Both parties have been known to use these tactics, but we think you know which one has had more success with them. Now let's go over some lingering questions. What would our political debates look like if logical fallacies were called out live and or censored on the spot? I think there wouldn't be a lot of <laughs> talking from the candidates going on. No, it'd just be a black screen the whole time. <laughs> and then it would just be Trump yelling wrong over and over again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with, without having a, like an open debate that could have the potential for these fallacies and things like that, we never would have gotten zingers like, you'd be in jail, or um, you know any of the small hands comments from Marco Rubio during the run-up to 2016, or, uh, you know, I don't want to hear any of these lies. And this gets down to the root cause of all this, and it's the entertainment industry. And it's TV. Go back to our first Hot Takes episode, TV. I stand by it. Exactly. TV is not a source. It's not primarily a source of giving information. It's primarily a spot for entertainment. And that's what the medium is for. Listen to Neil Postman. He... He made a good argument in his book, TV is not the place for information. Unlike going to a speech or radio, where there's less chance of diverting attention. TV is, is the place for entertainment, and that's what our debates are, entertainment. And they want the zingers. They only have like 30 seconds or a minute to reply, and usually Trump is, and the other person is, uh, they're just interrupting them. Any real debate, you need more than a minute. Oh, yeah, way more. I mean, if I don't know if you've ever watched the formal debates on YouTube, like, about the big questions. Yeah, I sent you one, like, a year ago, actually. I do remember the one, yeah, it was about, is God real? Yeah. If God real, why debate? <laughs> but, uh, no, in all seriousness, that was a really great debate, and it was very formal, like you said, and there was no audience, there was no booing, no cheering, there was no commercial breaks, there was really no activity from the moderator other than to just say, hey, your time's up. There was no interrupting, and that's a big problem with the political debates is that the moderators want to play like a, they're the third person up there debating. And, and they, they want to ask those loaded questions. Exactly, and there was none of that in, in the religious debate, which was good. Mr. Trump, you have been sexist towards women. He called women fat and pigs. Only Rosie O'Donnell. <laughs> <laughs> that was, that, that was, was like the best moment. That, that was, that was such a good moment because everyone can kind of be like, all right, that's fair. She deserves it. <laughs> You're right. See, the, the problem with it, though, is um, nobody would watch these debates. At this point, nobody would tune in to watch what they say, and then nobody would vote. Yeah, can you honestly re remember any other thing he said there other than those zingers? No. Exactly. Most people can't. It's mostly full of zingers and little factoids, gotcha moments. Exactly. And I would say one thing I'll add in is that you would do so much more for the political process, for the benefit of the political process, if you had each candidate just sit down with 
a Joe Rogan type or someone on a podcast for three or four hours at a time, even if it was just by themselves. But if you wanted to host a debate like that where there's no audience and it was long format, there's no commercials, then you have a really good moderator and you do it in a, in a long form, maybe even just an audio only form. That would be the only way that you could really start to bring things back to how they should be and really tease out the truth and expose the potential flaws in these candidates. Otherwise, it's going to be a zoo, a carnival, a circus. After this last election cycle, I really think they all just get a, do away with the, the debates because it was shameful on both sides. Yeah. Do you think it did more to just embarrass them than it did to help them? It, yeah, it embarrassed both sides. And Biden told Trump to shut up and, and Trump was acting terrible and just saying wrong and all this is... It was interrupting. They really should just both be required to sit down, like you said, with with a moderator like Joe Rogan, except not talking, not trying to get them to do drugs or anything. (laughs) Just an actual moderator who asks these questions and doesn't have an agenda. And they and then people can watch that if they want, where they actually get to explain themselves and ask and get asked tough questions. Yes. And not have the back and forth. Just do it separate. That's, that's, I think that's the best. They can't handle it anymore, obviously. So we're just going to have to do it separate. But then again, imagine sitting down by yourself for three hours with Joe Biden and just the absolute gaff machine that that would become. But then we'd get better candidates. We would because people would realize how awful that is. And so that's why they're going to try to fight tooth and nail to never let that happen, at least with him anyway. Yeah. Trump would do okay. but I think so. But Joe Rogan said he'd never have Trump on his podcast. Well, go watch our hot takes on Joe Rogan for our opinion on him. (laughs) What parts of America, besides politics, would noticeably change if everyone were educated on how to make a good argument? If everyone were educated on how to make a good argument, they would be better able to make all sorts of deals in in their own life. They would be able to negotiate and debate and talk more effectively with their boss, with their teacher, with their parents. And with their peers, I think every relationship that you have in your life would improve simply by being able to recognize when someone is is trying to get one over on you and trick you or deceive you or is just making some illogical argument or claim. Um, I think it would just grease the wheel in, in every, every aspect of, uh, of human life, every relationship. And I think it would just make things a lot more efficient and people could keep the emotions down. And that's a big thing for me. What about you? You're right. All, any relationship would be improved. You know, marriage, uh, children to parents and teachers, students would be more engaged and probably calling out their groomer teachers more. Yeah. And their communist teachers. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and especially if you focus on, on the, the younger generation and helping them, the, you know, the students to become more logically aware and uh, more rhetorical as well. I think that would just, uh, that would help us immensely and they could pass that on to the next generation more easily. So even if you do have some stragglers who are just, just stuck in their ways, just wanting to make all these fallacies and, and appeals to emotion and everything, at least then eventually they would go by the wayside and you would have a new crop that would come up. And there'd be less violence too. That's another good point. Yeah, there would be. And that's a, that's a benefit. That's a win-win right there. Now, lastly, would classical education help the next generations avoid these fallacies? And I think that ties into yeah. what we were just saying. We, we answered that already. I, I think it's, yeah, definitely. Especially if you can cultivate a culture that appreciates this type of knowledge and this type of 
learning and this subject matter because it is so important. It's like the it's the bedrock. Like you were saying earlier, like you you have to kind of know all this stuff already before you get into the classics. So it is the gateway to higher knowledge. And if we could just instill that in these next generations and and instill it enough to where they will pass it on to the next generation after that, then we can ensure that Western culture and the Western tradition continues. Likewise, at this point, my wife and I, we decide either private school or homeschool. And if we do homeschool, it's going to be a classically based one. Yeah. Emphasis on the based. Mm. <laughs> but no, for real, that's that's great. And and as a result, your children will be light years ahead of their peers. No question. They'll argue with them in Latin. Yes. Now that's some big brain stuff right there. They will. You're right. That's all for today's show. Make sure to like, subscribe, and leave your comments. Join us again next time for even more Ancient Wisdom.